What Biden and Schumer and Pelosi are doing is so whacked out. It is so extreme. They have handed the agenda over to the crazies in their party that I think all across the country, people's eyes are open. And, and, and I think we're on the verge of what will be a, a red tsunami in November. Between now and Election Day, I am on the road nonstop. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks for making the show possible. As you know, the Heritage Foundation has a lot of friends around the country and the world, and I like all my guests, but there's something about this week's guest that's particularly special. And once I introduce him, you'll know why, given my Texas background. Senator Ted Cruz, thanks for joining me. Kevin, great to be with you. Welcome to my office. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for letting me in. Uh, Absolutely. Well, we have some policy questions we're going to cover today. China, school choice, the border, really easy issues. There you go. All simple, straightforward. But before we get there, I mean, I can speak for millions of Texans. I'm proud that you were my senator for a long time, of course, living up here now. But the point is, people often ask me, how's it like in D.C.? I mean, is it really that bad? You've been up here a while. Oh, look, this, this town is is corrupt. You know, you know, they say D.C. combines southern efficiency with northern hospitality. <laughs> and and sadly, there's a lot of truth to that. It, it, it is the swamp. Um, and and both parties are in on it. Um, I think there's a frustration with career politicians in both parties that that people are furious that candidates don't do what they said they would do. It's the single most frequent advice I give to newly elected members of the Senate, newly elected members of the House, is just do what you said you would do. Whatever you told the voters in October you were going to do, when you get here in January, do that. And, And that disconnect, I think nothing better explains the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and nothing better explains the rage of the voters than the fact that so many politicians, both DNR, lie to the voters and don't follow through on their promises. And do you think that, I mean, we only have a little bit of time, not hours, because uh, it would take hours to sort of articulate this solution. Do you think that there's hope? And what I mean by that is you and I have a lot of mutual friends in Texas. These are successful men and women of all industries. And like you, I spent a lot of time after the election of 2020 sort of being a mental health counselor. And often what they're, they're really what they're asking for is is hope for the future of America. What are the one or two things sort of structurally or ideologically that need to change about D.C. for us to be able to give them real hope? So, look, I, I think there is enormous reason for hope. And, and I am profoundly optimistic. And, and I'd focus on two things in particular. Uh, number one, politics has always had a, a, a natural pendulum sense where one party gets in power, they go too far one way and the American people pull it back the other. What Biden and Schumer and Pelosi are doing is so whacked out. It is so extreme. They have handed the agenda over to the crazies in their party that I think all across the country, people's eyes are opening up. And and, and I think we're on the verge of what will be a, a red tsunami in November. Between now and Election Day, I am on the road nonstop campaigning for candidates for Senate, campaigning for candidates for the House, campaigning to take both back. And I'm really optimistic. I, I think the the disaster that is the Biden-Harris agenda has woken a lot of people up. Secondly, though, in terms of taking on the Washington swamp, I think one of the most important developments has, has been the growth of an informed and educated electorate. Um, if you look at, there's a generational divide in the Senate in particular, where, where some of the old guard, their view is, 
that we cut a deal in a smoke-filled room and then we go back home and tell the voters whatever it is they want to hear. And the two are not connected. That, that, that disconnect fuels the populist rage we see. One of the fantastic things is I think voters now, with, with the rise of the internet, with the rise of podcasts, whether this podcast, as you know, I do, do every week a podcast, Verdict with Ted Cruz. Our Verdict podcast, we beat the CNN morning show every week. I knew you were good. Uh, it, it's Well, people are hungry to know what's going on. And, and I think the more empowered the electorate is, the more informed the electorate is, the more they're able to, to make D.C. listen, to hold D.C. accountable. So both of those leave me really, really optimistic. And, and they do me, too. And, and I think that, unfortunately, what continues to fuel the populist rage, as you say, are issues like China writ large, yep. but in particular, as some of our aforementioned mutual friends in Texas alerted me to five or six years ago, the acquisition of American real estate yes. by China. But the point is, we are going to fix that. And I think that's in turn going to fuel the the strong desire, but solutions to devolve power from the city. But let's hang on that point for yeah. a minute, yeah. because I would argue that nefarious practice probably has affected Texans more than anyone else already. What do we do to fix it? Well, let me, let me take it at, at two levels. Let me start at a higher level of generality and then, then get to the specifics. At, at the higher level of generality, I believe China poses the single greatest geopolitical threat to the United States for the next century. Uh, and I've been saying that a long time. I've been, I've been in the Senate now a decade. When I got here, it was a lonely experience saying that. All of the Democrats and almost all of the Republicans looked at me like I was a lunatic because they looked to China and they saw nothing but dollar signs as far as the eye could see. They said, no, 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 Ted, China is our friend. You're, you're naive, you're silly. And listen, I believe the Chinese communist government, they are murderers, they are torturers, they are liars. They are running concentration camps with more than a million Uyghurs in prison right now. They engage in state-sponsored theft and embezzlement. And they purposely covered up COVID-19 and are responsible for deaths and, and trillions of dollars of economic damage across the country. And they have systematically targeted our economy, our supply chain, our critical infrastructure. Their objective is world domination. They're, they're not subtle about it, um, but they're also not impatient about it. They, they are waging what they view as a thousand-year war. We need to be serious, focused, systematic in terms of taking on the Chinese threat. I've introduced over a dozen different pieces of legislation focused on fighting their human rights violations, focused on fighting their espionage, focused on fi uh, fighting their deception, focused on fighting their propaganda, their propaganda in the United States. One of the ways they, they are targeting us is they're targeting us with systematic land purchases in the United States. And they've been focusing a lot of that attention on land near U.S. military bases. And they're buying up big swaths of land near military bases. Now, they do a couple of things when they buy the land. Number one, they erect giant windmills, which just happen to be right in the middle of training paths for U.S. fighter jets and U.S. planes, which dramatically hampers our ability to train our airmen to keep us safe. They're doing that quite deliberately. Secondly, they engage in rampant espionage. Their location near either critical infrastructure or military bases is designed to engage in espionage. I think it is insane that we're allowing the Chinese government to do that. I've introduced 
repeatedly legislation trying to attach it to the National Defense Authorization Act to prevent those acquisitions. To date, we haven't gotten that passed. And actually, much of the resistance has been a bureaucratic resistance within government. There's a process right now called CFIUS for approving foreign investments. And, and the, the Treasury Department and the other players in CFIUS jealously guard their bureaucratic turf. And so they've resisted it so far. I think we will get it done because I think it's impossible to defend what's going on right now. But at least so far, the machinery of Washington has been really slow and resistant to acting. Do you think that the machinery of Washington has been slow and resistant in part because the CCP and their expertise in elite capture have captured, dare I say, some K Street lobbying firms who are influential here in the Capitol? You know, that is certainly a factor. I don't know that that's the impediment here. Um, you know, I can tell you one of my first legislative victories when I, when I got here was uh, attaching a, a, an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, cutting off DOD funding to any university that had a Confucius Institute. And, and as you know, China had invested millions of dollars in standing up Confucius Institutes on U.S. universities that served as, as headquarters for espionage and, and propaganda. And, as a, and that amendment, I ended up getting both Democrat and Republican support for. We passed it into law. And that amendment has resulted in dozens of Confucius Institutes being shut down. Because if a university is given a choice between DOD money or the, or the Chinese money, the DOD money is more. Um, you also know uh, an institution you and I both love, the University of Texas, uh, was contemplating taking a bunch of Chinese money. And, and I urged the university quite publicly to just say no. And, and thankfully they did. They turned it down. So I think there is, there's power in shining some, some sunlight and, and sunshine to preventing more and more dependence on Chinese money. That being said, I don't want to diminish the impact of, of lobbyists in Washington um, who, who tend to, to, to slither their way into almost every decision in this town. But it is at least not as transparent as it used to be. And, and I'll say as an aside, one of the things that really changed the dynamic was COVID. And you look at COVID, which, which obviously originated in, in Wuhan, China. Um, I believe the evidence is overwhelming that the COVID vac uh, virus escaped from a Chinese government laboratory. And I think the evidence is significant. I wouldn't say overwhelming, but significant that the virus itself was manufactured, that it was gain-of-function research on existing viruses to make it more contagious and more deadly, uh, that, that it was Chinese government scientists that created this virus. When the pandemic started, we saw an official government effort to censor and silence that view. Dr. Fauci, in emails, asked Mark Zuckerberg, will you silence anyone on social media from saying that this virus escaped from a Chinese government lab. And, and Zuckerberg was more than happy to have Facebook censor the views. If you go back and look, in March uh, of 2020, right at, the, right at the outset of this pandemic, I did two podcasts, go back and look at Verdict, in March and April of 2020, laying out the evidence that this escaped from a government lab. I don't know why my podcast didn't get censored because just about any, anyone else saying this got censored, somehow they didn't censor, censor the podcast. What has happened over time, now we're two years later, 
And I'd say it's widely accepted that the virus escaped from a Chinese government lab. Um, what is undisputed is that the Chinese government actively covered it up when it escaped, disappeared scientists, disappeared whistleblowers, uh, played a significant part in this becoming a global pandemic. That changed a lot of people's views towards China. And, and, and I will say, look, I'll give an example of um, the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom and Huawei. You know, Huawei is in theory, a Chinese telecom company, but what it really is is a spy agency masquerading as a telecom company. And they go in and offer to build really cheap telecom infrastructure because the whole purpose is to spy on all communications going through it. So they're happy to make it cheap because it lets them see what's happening. And, and the United Kingdom uh, was contemplating, was going down the road to Huawei installing significant parts of their uh, commercial and civilian uh, telecom infrastructure. The United States was pressing them very, very hard not to do so, but they were leaning into doing so. And, and at the time I had, actually I don't mean this to be an advertisement for the podcast, but I had Nigel Farage on the podcast. And we talked about Huawei at the time and I said, listen, so the UK is part of what we called our uh, the five eyes uh, alliance, which is our closest allies that we share our most sensitive secrets and intelligence uh, information. And and what I said in the podcast, I said, look, we love the Brits, but if they install infrastructure that lets the Chinese surveil our communications, four eyes are better than six eyes. And as much as we love the Brits, if they're going to let the Chinese see what we had to say, we're not going to be able to share what we have to say anymore. That ended up making significant news back in the UK as COVID expanded, the UK switched course and pulled out of Huawei. So that that's a clear manifestation of how people's eyes were opened up to China. I think we're seeing the same thing in the United States. It seems to be that way. I mean, I want to agree with you significantly that it, while we've got some work to do in terms of policy, that at least the awareness of Americans about the Chinese Communist Party being an existential threat to America, to free people around the world is significant. If we take a step back and think about how do we address this existential threat, I think our gravest weakness isn't even the series of problems you laid out so well. It's our education system. Yeah. And, and, and I say that, and I, I know I can speak for you because we've talked about this so many times over the years, regardless of where someone went to school or is sending their kids to school, we believe as conservatives in a vibrant public school system, not just because of teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but because that's where we, we're able to learn our shared values, right? Yep. Well, our system is failing on both counts, and there's no way we can confront the CCP without a better system. Can we do that? Can our public education system rise to the occasion without some disruptive innovation like school choice? Well, uh, I'm going to take yes to the first half and no to the second part. Which okay, is, good, I think, good job tracking that long yeah. question. Um, I think we absolutely can improve our public education system, but I think the single most effective way to do so is through school choice. Um, you and I both believe in the power of free markets and the power of competition. Competition is good. Competition enhances quality. Uh, I believe school choice is, is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. It, it is the single domestic issue I care most about. I've been active leading the fight for school choice for a decade in the Senate. I've been active in the, in the school choice movement for 30 years. 
It is an issue where I think we're gaining enormous momentum. Number one, if you look across the country, school choice has overwhelming support across the country. It consistently has 70 to 80 percent support among the African-American community. It consistently has 70 to 80 percent support among the Hispanic community. And the Democrats are absolutely unwilling to entertain school choice. And their reason is corrupt and venal. They are bought and paid for by teachers union bosses. Now, the Democrats like to hold themselves out as the champions for minorities and, and for the poor. There is no policy on earth in which they are screwing poor people more than saying your kids are trapped. Your kids are trapped in failing schools and we don't care. We're not going to do anything. We're going to deny them scholarships. We're going to deny them charter schools. We're going to deny them hope. And, and, and a point I've made a lot of times is school choice has been around since the dawn of time. The rich and middle class have always had it. Uh, let's take, okay, so you're now in D.C., the Bethesda Public Schools. Bethesda is a very wealthy suburb of D.C. and Maryland. Bethesda Public Schools, if, if suddenly they had a 50% dropout rate, if of the students that remained there, only 30% graduated reading at grade level, if they had drug dealers walking the halls, and if they had little girls getting sexually assaulted in the bathrooms, the Bethesda Public Schools would be empty. Why? Because most of the parents there have money. They have the resources. They do one of two things. Either they'd pay for private school tuition or they'd pick up and move to another district where there's a better public schools. But either way, they have the resources to say, I ain't sending my kid to a school where they're not learning and, and their physical safety is at risk. All school choice is about is giving low-income kids the same ability to choose that the rich and middle class always have. And the single most important benefit of school choice is where your question started which is competition. And we've now seen with choice programs across the country that when parents have the ability to choose, the quality of education in the public school gets better. When the students have the ability to leave, the parents have the ability to say, if you don't teach my kids, I'm taking them somewhere else. Nothing is more effective for raising the reading scores, the, the arithmetic scores, the graduation rates, for improving school safety. And if you give a damn about kids, I think every child in America has a right to have access to an excellent education. That ought to be true regardless of race, ethnicity, wealth, or zip code. And, and that's what school choice is all about. So a, a question that sounds Texas specific, and on one level it is, but-, but I'll, I'll never fault you for a Texas specific I, I know question. that. I'm in, I'm in good company there, my friend. But it also, for non-Texans watching or listening this, this is also disproportionately important for this reason. Nearly 10% of school-aged kids in the United States are Texans. Yep. And yet, for speaking for two guys who've been working on school choice as long as we've been in policy, Texas has been the elusive, yep. elusive option. Are you more confident going into this next Texas legislative session that we're turned the, we've turned the corner and we're going to see it? So I am. Um, look, I, I am uh, angry that Texas is not leading the country in school choice. There, there are other states like Arizona and Florida that have been far more innovative on school choice. The impediment in Texas has not been a partisan one. It's been a geographic one which is that the opposition has, Democrats are opposed because they're bought and paid for by teachers unions. But in Texas, the challenge has been rural Republicans, where if you're a rural Republican, typically the largest employer in your district is the school district. And your school, school superintendent leans on you. And we've had a lot of rural Republicans who've been nervous to engage on choice. That has been the impediment. 
Um, and candidly, a lot of the state leaders have not been willing to expend political capital on this issue. Uh, if you look at where choice has been implemented, the only places it's been implemented is where people were willing to fight and die on that hill and be voted out of office over it. Now, as you know, Kevin, I, I do a strange thing. I do a lot of strange things, uh, but, but I do a strange thing for, for a U.S. senator, which is that I actively and aggressively engage in state legislative primaries. I don't know of another senator out of all 100 senators that does this. And, and the reason they don't, frankly, what I'm doing is stupid. It's bad politics. Because if you're a U.S. senator, you engage in a, in a state primary. When you endorse someone, you get half of their friends and you get all of their enemies. So every time you're engaging in a race, you're pissing people off that when it turns around for election season, you need those people. So why do I do it? Well, when I'm making these decisions, I have my team make an Excel spreadsheet of every vote that, that those members have cast on school choice. And if a state representative, a state senator has supported school choice and they're otherwise reasonably conservative, they're very likely to get my support. If they have opposed school choice, the chance of my get, getting my support is essentially zero. And there's a very real likelihood that I will support a primary opponent to them and beat them in office. And, and I've, I've made this very public. And in fact, as you know, I've announced this. Every state legislator knows it at this point. And there were a whole bunch of contested runoffs that we just had in Texas uh, where uh, I engaged in those runoffs. On the other side, you had the teachers unions openly supporting the Republicans on the other side, and we beat them in the majority of races. And, and my hope is, and by the way, when I endorse a candidate, I don't just endorse them. I will go campaign for them. I'll cut radio ads. I mean, I will engage and do everything I can to help them win, and we keep winning these races. My hope is that this will prove far less necessary. That, that, that it will be a carrot and a stick. And I hope come January in the next legislative session, as the, the reps are sitting there, that they'll say, you know what, e even if the superintendent is not thrilled in my district, I don't really want to have mess with Cruz. So, so let me just do the right thing for the kids in our district. I hope that helps. I can tell you, before I was elected to Senate, I, I, I said this. I said, if when I die, my tombstone says that Ted played a significant role in bringing about school choice for the kids of Texas and the kids of this country, I, I will die a happy man. And so I'm hopeful this next legislative session, Texas is able to lead on this. Well, let's say that happens and we'll, we'll get to the last question here with the, the few minutes we have remaining, Senator. We still have the problem with, as, as some of our friends say, every county in America being a border county, that yep. is we're all feeling the effects of the border crisis. We have a leftist party that's become radically left. You know that better than anyone. We have Americans who just simply can't have civil discourse. All of that to write the headline. A lot of people who used to have been filled with hope say, even if we win elections, even if we get school choice, that all is lost. And I'm really not overstating that. What I'm looking for from you is to for us to sort of kind of come full circle in this conversation. And, and if you don't mind, sir, concluding, as you're so good at, with some sense of hope for people who are watching this and saying, I want to stay in the fight, but give me some reason to. So you and I are both about the same age. That's um, what you tell me. <laughs> so we're both old enough to remember the 1970s. Uh, I'm fond of saying history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. I think Joe Biden is eerily 
uncannily repeating the same mistakes of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a disaster. Um, I was a kid, but I remembered double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates, gas lines going around the block, uh, a president wringing his hands, impotent, putting on a sweater, telling Americans, turn up your thermostat, our hostages languishing in Iran, our helicopters crashing in the desert with no opposing fire. Every one of those weak, impotent, left-wing socialist ideas, Joe Biden has take, taken, and, and to use a Spinal Tap reference, he's turned it to 11. And it is, I, I've joked, somewhere in, in Georgia right now, Jimmy Carter is saying, yes, not worst president ever. Like, holy cow. Why is it that analogy gives me so much hope and optimism? Because it took Jimmy Carter to give us Reagan. Prior to Carter, remember, Reagan was this crazy California cowboy. He was too conservative. Remember, all the smart, all the enlightened Republicans said the way we win is we nominate milquetoast Republicans who believe nothing, and that's how we win. And, and the American people looked at the train wreck was, that was Jimmy Carter and said, we don't want a slight course correction. We want to change dramatically, and that turned this country around. It was bad in the 70s. Remember, my parents' mortgage rate was 14.5%. Um, and we saw, we went from GDP growth averaging less than 1% a year from 78 to 82. Do you know what GDP growth was in, in 84, fourth year of Reagan's presidency? Don't remember. 7.9% booming quick, economic quick growth. We won the Cold War behind you as a painting in my office. That obviously is Reagan standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate. Up top are the words, tear down this wall in German in the style of the graffiti. We won the Cold War without firing a shot. We revived our economy. We produced record economic growth. We lifted millions of people out of poverty. We achieved mourning in America. And by the way, what happens when you get 7.9% economic growth the next year, 19, actually that year, that November, 1984, Reagan's reelect? You probably know this. How many states did Reagan win in 84? Uh, 49. 49. You know, we think of blue states and red states. When you've got booming jobs and opportunity, the whole country says, I want more of this. I think we're at the same point. So listen, are there reasons to be discouraged? Yes, but sometimes things have to get bad before they get better. And, and I, I believe this country is worth fighting for. You know, I, I am on the road nonstop. I see young people getting energized, believing in freedom. We're seeing what a disaster socialism is. That is a, a teaching moment and a learning moment that I hope will stick with us for a long time. And, 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 I think we got to believe in the power of freedom and we got to explain it. And we got to explain it with facts, with stories, with emotion, and with humor. We got to laugh. We got to be happy warriors. The left is so shrill and so angry that, that I think if we're joyful warriors, I, I believe there are better days ahead of us. Couldn't agree more to all of that. Senator Ted Cruz, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for joining this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. I told you it would be good. I can't promise that the very next episode will be quite that good, but it will be close. We'll see you then.
The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.